This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Hello, I'm Steve Clemens. I'm editor-at-large of The Atlantic, and it's uh, a real pleasure to be with all of you. This is my second time uh, here teased by the waves and dolphins just off the coast as we sit inside this room. But uh, we're talking about great things. We're here with Mark Bowden, of course, his national correspondent for The Atlantic. Um, you may have, have heard him already, author of Black Hawk Down, uh, hangs out with President Clinton, talks about his missteps. But I thought what we would do... Mark has written about so many different issues, from computer worms. He's not allowed to talk about it, but his next big thing is how they got bin Laden, the takedown of bin Laden. Um, that I can say that, right? Yep. No, no uh, Navy SEAL guys will show up and rush me off stage. Um, so he's not going to talk about that, that, at least while the cameras are rolling. You might get him at lunch. And I thought what we do, at least start out, is play with the themes of the conference, which is technology and how uh, technology is changing everything. And we haven't orchestrated any bit of this, I promise. But uh, I am interested in this question of he he is so knowledgeable, Mark, so knowledgeable about about war that when I think about this age of austerity that uh, Washington thinks it's in and the big cuts that are coming in defense, there was a time before 9-11 when Don Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, thought we were going to have to slash defense budgets. And Rumsfeld began thinking about smart soldiers, revolutionary military affairs, how could you take technology and satellites and systems and become more efficient and really change the dynamic. And, and so you had essentially a budgetarily driven technological innovation thing going on in Rumsfeld's head until 9-11 hit. And then in 9-11 hit, it ended the era of hard choices. Everything got funded. And so you didn't have to discriminate or distinguish between different things. So I'm interested in, in, in really coming back when you think about drones and you think about geospatial intelligence, you think about all the sensors we have for everything we do in the world, the measured man, uh, you know, on and on, whether we're back in an age mark where when we're here 10 years from now, the whole nature of warfare, soldiers, fighting, um, intelligence is going to be in a very different place because of our shrinkage of resources to do things. Mm-hmm. Well, probably we would have been better off if we hadn't strayed from the notion of um, thinking smart and thinking small. Um, you know, I think probably in the long run, uh, the decision to send hundreds of thousands of soldiers to Iraq will be regarded as a mistake. Um, I think that, you know, the way that we fight increasingly is through uh, special operations, which is small unit uh, missions uh, done in concert with host nations. Uh, I tend to agree with President Obama's approach to uh, working with other countries. I know that Republicans have taken to call this, calling this leading from behind, but I think it makes a lot more sense 
in the world that we live in today and the kind of enemies that we face that we work in concert with other countries and that we maintain as small a footprint as we possibly can. And so that works also in terms of you know, military spending. Uh, we can't continue to spend gobs of money on every weapons program that we can conceive of. Uh, so it makes sense to um, focus on those things that uh, we know we can do well. We aren't going to need... I don't think uh, we, we have to maintain a standing army, but the chances of us going into battle in a large scale again in the foreseeable future, I think, are fairly so, small. So how does war change then? You know, this is San Diego. A lot of military veterans here, um, those big armies and, and navies that have been deployed, they all, those people all have, have parents. Yesterday when Mitt Romney spoke at Virginia Military Institute, you were still seeing that same idea of people being deployed. Is the future going to be, you know, my robot got deployed, my, you know, that was my computer worm, that, you mean, do you change war by essentially getting rid of people? I think increasingly that will be the case. Um, You know, generally warfare in the past has been about defending or taking territory. Mm -hmm. And I don't think a lot of that is going to be going on in the future. I think that uh, uh, natural resources are going to be key and important, maintaining uh, avenues of uh, uh, transport for uh, oil, for other natural resources are important. Um, but I don't think that uh, we are going to be building huge armies and outfitting them and arming them and training them to go into battle. I think we are probably, as a country, going to be picking uh, our fights uh, in a much more uh, careful and particular way. You know, years ago, California was huge in the, in the whole manned bomber debate. Uh, B-2 bomber had 53,000 different subcontractors spread out of in every congressional district, but the big chunk of it was made and, you know, organized in California. So the whole idea that you would have bombers that were unmanned, well, we now have whole fleets of unmanned bombers, which right. are essentially called drones. Right. And, and, you know, I'd be interested in your view on drones, because drones seem to me to be uh, if not pushing the edge over the edge of uh, legality, kind of traditional legality when it comes to the norms of war. And, and one question I have, you know, when, when America had a preponderance of technological edge in the Cold War in nuclear systems, say before the Soviets acquired a nuclear bomb, there are a lot of people that said, be careful, don't, don't, you know, to Curtis LeMay and John Foster Dulles and a lot of others that wanted to be, you know, nuclear uh, bomb happy. Uh, be careful because that technology will come back and get you someday. Right. And it seems today that we've got a monopoly for a moment on drone technology, geospatial intelligence, targeting, and that system. But it seems to be an extremely low bar for what would be necessary for bad guys or, or the other guys to get that kind of technology. Actually higher than you might think. Why, uh, why is it higher? Because it isn't the drone, it isn't the robot aircraft that's, that's the achievement. The achievement is global telecommunications, uh, the computer networks that anal- analyze data, uh, the software that enables uh, 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 intelligence analysts and uh, military targeters to um, use that information readily. So, for instance, when Iran shot down a drone and put it on display, assuming that's exactly what happened, I mean, that's like... Uh, the least significant part of the system that drones represent. I mean, drones are basically, the first drone 
The first Predator drone was a uh, glider with an Austrian ski mobile engine in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, people who've flown uh, uh, toy airplanes uh, for generations have been uh, remotely guiding a- airplanes around. What's remarkable about it is, and, and obviously the cameras and sensors that are on board, there are some sensors uh, that are sensitive, that are on those uh, devices. But more important than the sensors themselves is the ability to uplink that data to a satellite, send it to a directed uh, uh, national security computer that can really utilize that information. So uh, it isn't, I don't think, that easy. It's not going to be that easy for most countries to um, employ drones the way that, uh, that the United States does. Um, you know, one of the things I find really fascinating about drones, which have become our premier warfighting method uh, for the moment, is that Barack Obama is the first president who, on a daily basis, um, makes a decision to pull a trigger. I mean, we've had presidents who have sent armies into battle and have made decisions that influence, you know, the, the lives and may kill, in the case of Harry Truman, hundreds of thousands of people. Hmm. But it's very new for a United States president to wake up every day and have a dossier on his desk that says, here is someone we have in the crosshairs. Should we kill him or not? Uh, what, what are the advantages and disadvantages there? And he has to make that decision on an almost daily basis. That's, um, that's a change in the job description, I think. <laughs> you know, Obama said at one point that uh, uh, when he was... Um, um, talking about how he was against the Iraq war, but he was uh, very much in favor of going after al-Qaeda, he said he would personally, this is back in like 2004, 2005, he would be willing personally to take up arms against uh, al-Qaeda. And little did he know that that would actually come true, that he, he literally makes those decisions whether to pull, pull triggers. Um, Drones are actually, as I see them, an advance in uh, humanitarian war because the three um, basic principles of uh, uh, the, the law of war are necessity uh, and uh, distinction and proportionality. So once we pass the hurdle of necessity, if we say, yes, we are justified, in fact, we are compelled as a country to target terrorists who are trying to instigate and act, carry out acts of mass murder, if we, if we accept the necessity of doing that, then the two other principles of, uh, of the law of war are uh, distinction, making sure that you are targeting the right people, and proportionality, which means you are not willy-nilly killing innocent people. And drones, which enable surveillance to take place from a stable platform 24-7 over weeks and months, enables greater distinction than any uh, weapon system in history. And likewise, uh, with the increasing variability of uh, uh, weaponry that can be launched from drones, in the case of Osama bin Laden, the argument at the end was over whether to send in the SEALs, which they decided to do, or to shoot a missile about the size of your forearm at him, which would have killed the person who they thought was bin Laden and no one else. Those were the two choices. So, you know, the, the ability to target with great precision and the ability to avoid unnecessary casualties are both, in my way of looking at war, uh, tremendous advances in, in the humanitarian prosecution of warfare. There are, the downside to it, the thing that's scary about it, 
is that um, it makes work too easy. Uh, if if we don't have to, I mean, place- that was going to be my question. Is I can't think of a technology that the U.S. government. I mean, this is the libertarian DNA. I had Neanderthal DNA. This is my little five percent of libertarian DNA coming. I haven't seen a government technology or authority that I can think of not eventually get abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you yourself have written about coercive um, interrogation techniques, and you oppose them. But you said there's 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 always the room for the exception, but the exception is highly exceptional. Right. What about the routinization of a process where the president's sitting down with six guys every morning, yeah. and they all are guys? I think that's and, a terribly and you've important, got a routinized terribly important question, and I think it's very important to establish um, uh, um, fundamentals in how you go about what are the place restrictions on the use of this power, not only for future presidents who will be put in that position, but also set a standard for other countries. Um, It's a new technology, and uh, the opportunity is, you know, certainly there for abuse. I know, you know, I've spoken to actually the president about this, and I've talked to folks at CIA, and they have drawn up guidelines which they have not made public. Uh, but they're working on them, and they hope to hand them off. Uh, so the president says, I've later. got this little checklist? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, Stephen Preston is the uh, counsel for the CIA, and he's drafting these rules. And I think it's a checklist. It mm. says, I know, what defines a target that is a valid target? What makes a target valid? And what are the circumstances um, where you are willing to use force that might um, kill uh, others? Who are around that person? Like a, you know, is a is a legitimate target in a car with one person who's not a legitimate target? Is it okay to go after them? So there's, I'm sure, I can't even think of all the ways that they would try to define those things. But they're they're working on it, and they haven't made them public. I think they ought to. I think the public ought to be involved in this mm. discussion. So I mean, just not to hit drones on the head, but but you know, another thing that's that's come to light recently is that. The Department of Defense is loaning drones, essentially Homeland Security and others, to states for aerial surveillance, for drug interdiction. Uh, there was this case where Mark Mazzetti uh, in, uh, of the New York Times wrote a really interesting piece that I blogged about um, that, that showed that uh, for training purposes in New Mexico, drones were trailing and tracing cars on the freeway, private cars. Now, not that they were going to bomb them. But the point is, you're using civilian traffic as a training technique for, you know, military drone targeting. And this was uh, first reported by the New York Times and then second by the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you worry about, I mean, that, that seems to be something there's not a lot of concern about, that there just seems to be we're moving over the edges over what normally we used to fight about would have been considered to be legal, appropriate. You said, Are we just entering an age where questioning government on these things is over? <laughs> no, I think it's important to question government, and there always will be um, conflict between personal liberties and uh, constitutional protections and what maybe law enforcement or uh, you know, the military wants to do. I mean, I don't think that tension is going to go away. Um, I, I don't think, however, that a police department that puts a drone up over the city to uh, track the movements of uh, suspects that they're interested in or, or whatever is necessarily a um, uh, threat to uh, personal liberty. I think that, you know, surveillance uh, by law enforcement 
<clears throat> by the military has always gone on. This is just a new tool that's more effective. Uh, it could be abused, uh, but I don't think it necessarily will be. I mean, that's what the press is about. That's what uh, uh, the ACLU is about. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that tension is going to go away. And then, and then finally, my question, I'd like to open the floor, but the, the you know, you wrote Black Hawk Down. It's got to be one of the most depressing contemporary stories for the United States of, of, of military engagement, of thinking it would go one direction or another. And I think the death of uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens, in my mind, is not quite the Black Hawk Down story, but it's a little bit close. And it's, it's close in the sense that, you know, is there a hubris about what we are and what we have and our power? And you just, it just doesn't play out in work quite as well as we would think, uh, and that technology is not, not the be-all of, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're invading a country, attacking a country, or even present trying to help a country. Well, um, I, I, first of all, let me say, I don't think Black Hawk Down is all that depressing a story. Okay. Um, because I think it uh, captured the uh, incredible, you know, professionalism and commitment of these young men. Fair point. Who fought, and, and so it's yeah. in that way inspiring. In fact, I think the reason that book is so popular. It's about a military disaster, uh, but it's also uplifting in that it shows you know, the kind of uh, character uh, that these soldiers exhibited under tremendous uh, uh, duress. Um, I do think you know, there's uh, less of a danger today. It ebbs and flows. I think when we sent our troops to Somalia in 1993, we were in the grip of a very unrealistic expectation as a country that we could uh, send soldiers overseas to do military missions without any of them getting hurt. Uh, and, and I think that one of the reasons why that episode had such tremendous impact was that it exploded this myth that had grown out of the relative ease of chasing Saddam out of mm-hmm. Kuwait. You know, the idea that we were so incredibly sophisticated and powerful that we could, you know, uh, dispatch soldiers to accomplish things and they wouldn't get hurt. So risk has, is a uh, critical part of any military effort that involves putting people on the ground. And in a sense, it is it, as part of any military effort. I mean, those who today are so eager for the United States to launch a military attack against Iran to stop them from building a nuclear weapon, which is you know, what we as a country have said we intend to do if, ne- if need be, uh, that will not be an action taken without risk. The risk there will not be necessarily only whatever military people we send to do that, but Iran through Hezbollah, if you think Al-Qaeda was a uh, scary terrorist organization, uh, wait till you meet Hezbollah. Uh, this is an internationally funded, highly trained, very professional organization capable of launching terrible attacks, which I'm certain they will, uh, throughout the world uh, if we go to war with Iran. So, I mean, I'm not saying that we as a country should necessarily, if we have to do it, we have to do it, but we have to go to war with an expectation that there will be a price to pay. Mm-hmm. And so if we, we think we're so all-powerful, we've got another thing coming. Right, let me open the, the floor to questions. Uh, yes, you're right here. And we'll get a microphone up to you. It's Joseph Weiss. Thank you. Uh, 
I'm surprised that you mentioned that you would like to have published a criteria that would make up the checklist of whether a person is a fair target or not or what are the criteria that would preclude that. If they put on the list that we will not attack anyone who is in a religious institution such as a church or a mosque or we will not attack anyone who happens to be in a preschool. It sounds right. It sounds logical. But if I were Osama bin Laden, I would put my headquarter offices in a preschool or in a mosque. And how do you balance public information and the right to know with common sense and you're giving information to your adversary? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. You know, I think you, I do, I do think those sorts of tactical details of decision making would be unwise to make public, but I do think that there are uh, broad strategic um, parameters that, that the public ought to be involved in. Otherwise, there uh, uh, is no understanding of how these decisions are arrived at. There's always a tension in a democratic society between national security and the public's right to know. Right now, in the case of drone technology, there is no public discussion of the rules and regulations guiding or governing the use of that weapons system. And I think that uh, there ought to be. I think that uh, people should be allowed to think about it and, and, you know, the, the... Broad strategic issues should be debated. I mean, to make a uh, just in myself respond. Uh, the a few years ago, uh, I sat in a small dinner. I don't want to mention uh, who this uh, military leader was, but there was a small dinner of ten people, and Senator Dianne Feinstein was there. And they had just held a hearing, and this general um, asked her, "Did the issue of stripping citizens of their U.S. citizenship come up?" Regarding this, no doubt had to do with Alaki, but but other other cases, there are other known terrorists who carry U.S. citizenship, and so one of the issues is, can there be essential a process of removing their citizenship so you can, you know, essentially go and hit them with a drone? Uh, and it and and Senator Feinstein, to her credit, in my view said, absolutely not. We didn't go down that. That would be a very dangerous, slippery slope. Now, no matter what you think, this was fascinating because you got a snapshot of where her mind was, and she's pretty hawkish on some things. But I also got a snapshot of what many generals were thinking about. And, and you, you, that, in my book, uh, represents something that I want to know about and I would like, in my own case, to contend that I think it's quite dangerous at some point. because. But that is a good so, example of an of a issue that I think deserves some public discussion, yeah. whether or not we can legitimately target an American citizen or whether we need to set some procedure up to... A due strip, process. A yeah, due process yeah. that, that affords some protection to people because who knows who's going to be president in 50 years, you know, and they may decide that, you know, uh, people who are belong to the Society for the Protection of Small Animals uh, are a threat to our national security. Uh, you know, who's to say? Well, I think... Maybe creating safe havens, but the thing is that when you, when you, you know, when you see, when you, you don't know the norms of a system or a political order unless you see how it behaves under stress. I remember when the 1947 National Security Act was passed, I had an opportunity to interview a couple of people years ago about that. And, and of course, this came after World War II, and it came after Roosevelt. He said these laws were, were essentially set up to, to create a process because your fear is you couldn't depend on a smart Roosevelt or an all-too-powerful Roosevelt, perhaps, that you had to count on the fact that you might get a dumb president someday. You might get, you might get any numbers. You had to basically engineer a system of decision-making that was going to be different and independent from that, 
from that guy. And I sort of think that that's, you know, an interesting But, you know, question another question that, that so. you might want to uh, debate publicly is who makes that decision? Right now, the president is either deciding or the CIA director. Oh, lately, now it's the CIA director who's sometimes making this decision. Is that going to spread to the deputy CIA right. director? Uh, is a, a general in the field going to be allowed to have that authority? So where does that authority reside? Who makes the final call? I mean, those kinds of questions, I think, are legitimate subjects for uh, public debate. Yes, right here. Lots of questions. Right here in the middle. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. The first is, can you speculate as to why when Iran captured supposedly the U.S. drone, they shrouded the entire bottom of the uh, drone? Um, There was a lot of speculation at the time in the press. I never heard any kind of resolution as to what they think it was caused or why they did that. They did what to it? They did not let you view the underside of the drone that was captured. It had this uh, bunting that was all around the bottom of it. And if they captured it, what's the big deal about display? Even if it's damaged on the bottom because of a Mm -hmm. crash landing, who cares? Why did they have to hide that bottom of it? And the second question is, how much damage do you think was done by Mark Owen, or if any, in his book? Thanks. Well, I'm going to say the three words you're never allowed to say on television in answer to your first question, which is, I don't know. Uh, I, mean, I don't understand why they would have shrouded the underside of that drone. Uh, you know, they claim they shot it down, so maybe if the landing gear was intact, that might imply that it had landed on its own. I just don't know. Uh, and Mark Owen, um, I don't think he did any real damage uh, with what he wrote, but I do think that the principle of individuals who have security clearance, who are in special operations units rushing out and selling, getting book contracts for missions that they've gone on is a dangerous precedent. And so I think you will see after the election, um, the Defense Department will probably take some steps at least to as a um, uh, disincentive for others who might be so inclined. Uh, You know, I, I think, you know, my great advantage as a journalist is that I don't have a security clearance. Uh, I've made no oath uh, to protect uh, national security information. I was once invited to give a talk at a CIA conference, and uh, I said, sure, I'll come talk. And they um, called me back the next day and asked me what my security clearance was. And I said, you've got to be kidding. I would have like a negative security clearance. <laughs> I, I'm a reporter, you know. I'm the kind of guy they keep things from. They literally had to declassify a building, uh, and everybody had to leave the grounds of the conference and walk across the street to hear me uh, give my talk. But I'm very comfortable with that. I think that, that that's one of, it's a really important part of the way our system works. Uh, I do try, you know, when I write about uh, things to avoid placing anyone in jeopardy or blowing some uh, ongoing operation or tactic or technique. But that's what I think about Owen. I think he uh, has set a very dangerous precedent. Right here. Hi, Stacy Kermitis again. I am concerned about what I learned about our ambassador's death in Libya. Uh, tragically, some people from San Diego, magnificent former Navy SEALs, were killed as well. But I understand they were employed by a private company mm-hmm. providing security. And how does that work? Is that ethical? That's, well, up, to you. that's up to you guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's a big part of downsizing the United States military, cutting, cutting back on the uh, federal budget. Um, privatizing uh, things like security at embassies. Uh, you know, I think that uh, do, do you get the same level of uh, 
of professionalism and oversight when uh, and it isn't just providing security we hire contractors in war zones now to do all kinds of things that the uh, army used to do it's uh, i think it's a, a serious problem i mean it just just for fun if you want to i'm not a big fan of wikileaks but WikiLeaks in Iraq was very interesting because so much of it had to do with the behavior and incidents involving contractors. Uh, and, and, you know, we had classified or made sensitive information regarding to deaths of innocent uh, Iraqis that were related to, to contractors. And in my view, those should never have been classified. So it's interesting, you know, on the WikiLeaks side. But yes, ma'am, right here, and then we'll, we'll just do a quick swath. And this gentleman, I won't forget you, I promise. Uh, hi. Oh, Suzanne. I didn't know that was you. Suzanne Smalley. I actually work for The Atlantic. Uh, um, but I, I would I, not have called on you had I... Well, yeah, so go ahead. No. I think that a lot of people in this room might be interested in my question, which is about drug violence, given that we're right across the border from Mexico, and you mm. wrote one of the definitive accounts of drug violence with killing Pablo. Do you have any... I know you have a lot of sources still in the DA and throughout government, and... Um, obviously understand a lot about the drug wars. Do you have a take on what's next for Mexico and, and the violence down there? Well, I think that um, eventually what happened in Colombia, and you're talking about my book Killing Pablo, which is about the hunt for Pablo Escobar, um, it became a larger issue than the drug issue. I mean, on the drug front, I would say that we will have a drug problem in the world so long as so many people want to use drugs illegally, and so long as they remain illegal. Uh, that forces the whole operation underground and creates this huge, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, international industry. So if you shut it down in one place, it'll pop up someplace else. People are going to, you know, take the risks to get that money. The larger issue that came uh, to, uh, uh, to bear in Colombia and is now a problem in Mexico is when the drug organizations become so rich and powerful, they begin to undermine the state. And that's where, you know, you have, you know, Pablo's policy of uh, plomo o plato. You, you mm-hmm. either you know, take out my payoff or, or I'll, you know, kill you. And that's really effective. Uh, and it, it can undermine the integrity of government. Uh, and I think that's what's going on in Mexico. So, you know, I do think that uh, you have two problems there. I do think Colombia has demonstrated at least that you can get the one larger problem under control by uh, um, uh, making it uh, too risky for people to challenge public institutions. But I don't think that killing Pablo Escobar did anything to mm. impede the flow of drugs to this country. I think that's a bigger, deeper problem. This gentleman has been very patient. Um, a few days ago, Israel claimed to have shot down a drone that was uh, sent over their territory by hostiles. That hasn't the bar been crossed to some degree of sophistication by the bad guys? Yeah, it has. And I would expect, though, that what you're seeing there is just simple aerial surveillance, which you can accomplish with a balloon. Uh, you know, it's... it's uh, you know, you're going to see it grow. I mean, other countries, China certainly is capable of, sure. uh, of flying drones over wherever they want to and coordinating with satellites and everything else. I, I do think that uh, the full scale of what drone trick technology gives you is linked to these larger systems that are behind it. Uh, but there are certain advantages that you can gain by, you know, flying a remote uh, uh, toy airplane over a battlefield and checking out where, you know, people are deployed. 
You can probably look it up on Google Maps, though. Good question. I've not heard. <laughs> uh, we'll take these two here in the middle, and we're probably going to need to call it off uh, after that, unless somebody really wants to jump out of the seat. But this gentleman in the green shirt, and then just in front of him. Hi, Mark. I really think your book, uh, Killing Pablo and uh, Black Hawk Down, are seminal works, so thank you very much. I was just thank curious. You. I mean, when those other than, I forget the guy's name, Mancuso or the SEAL who wrote his book, I mean, you were the first person to really look deeply into this this new, you know, the, the that small group unit work. Did you pull anything out of that back to this recent book, uh, you know, No Easy Day, or were you asked to pull anything out based on your research in terms of, you know, you know, secret knowledge or things? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, um, and I've actually written a, a piece that, that I think is going to run in the New York Times next week about um, the use of background interviews and the importance of background interviews for the kind of work that I do. Uh, but uh, I did almost all of the high-level interviewing for this book I've written called The Finish on background, and that meant the rules of background in um, uh, Interviewing are that you have to come back and uh, review what's been t- said to you um, and get approval to attribute, you know, that information. And in the case of, uh, so you do attribute. You you are you are giving the person you're interviewing the option of not having that comment attributed to them. I see. You know, you are not giving them anything more than that. You know, but they can. If I interview the president and he's, it's on background, I have to come back and say, okay, I would like to quote you as saying this. If he says, no, I can still quote it, but it becomes Without a senior administration right. official right. instead of the president. Uh, you know, and it just gives them a degree of protection. But in the case of um, David Petraeus at CIA, he said some things to me off the record. Because I asked questions like, well, explain to me, give me an illustration of how thus and so worked. You know, and so he would say, okay, off the record, and then he would explain something. And in some cases, those are such good stories. You know, I had... Uh, uh, so he really did know the difference between on the record and off the record. Yeah, he did. You know, some don't. And uh, I, uh, I had written a prologue to the yeah. book, which will be out next week, uh, based on a story that he told me. And he, when I came back to him, they, they deliberated, said, nope, that has to stay totally off the record. And then I begged. I said, you know, yeah. are there, like, pieces of it I could use, you know, and that wouldn't blow anything? Nope. You know, the whole thing is off the record. So I had to think of something else to write as a prologue to my book. Oh, so we don't know what, yeah. Uh, interesting. <laughs> but we do know. Yes. Uh, this gentleman right here. Hi. We've talked a lot about how technologies are disrupting and changing war. I'd like to ask a little bit of an opposite question. What are some of the interesting technologies, trends, you think are most important when thinking about how diplomacy, deterrence of war, mm-hmm. and peacemaking you know, are being disrupted? Great, great question. It is a good question. And I think, you know, just the large answer to that question is I think just global telecommunications um, are a godsend to world peace. Uh, I think that the ability for uh, uh, Americans or Russians or Chinese to to have instant knowledge of what's going on in the world, I think that anyone, like in, say, in Syria where Assad is bombing, you know, civilian neighborhoods. Anyone with a cell phone is a reporter. And that you just can't get away with stuff anymore. I think that's, you know, been a problem for our United States military, but it's a overall a great thing. And I think we are all far more sensitive uh, than people were 100 years ago or 50 years ago to loss of life, to 
the ca- casualties that uh, occur as a result of military action that we take. Right now, I mean, it's a great crisis in this country if we, uh, you know, an errant bomb in Afghanistan kills uh, a dozen people that, that mm-hmm. they weren't targeted. Um, in the past, I mean, I think in war, hundreds of thousands of people would be killed without anyone batting an eye. I mean, so that knowledge alone is really important. So I think instant telecommunications is changing completely the nature of warfare. Perception becomes hugely important in fighting war, and so uh, I think that inhibits uh, the uncivilized behavior of uh, combatants. So I think all of that is to to our benefit. You know, at the grassroots level, if you read Bill Clinton's piece on five ideas or five things that are changing the world that appeared in Time magazine, you know, he he talked about, you know, this incredible dispersion of cell phones and how you could bank the unbank and do all of this. And that's fine. But what I look at is sort of the question of big war is a more interesting story before 9-11. Sandia National Labs, Livermore Labs, Los Alamos Labs, these are all nuclear bomb makers. They handle plutonium and they basically know who all the smart, dangerous plutonium makers are in the world. And if you looked at the budget of Sandia, which is, was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was an informal divide between what they called the war fighting missions of the operation of the plutonium and, 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 and nuclear bomb part and what they called the trust building part. So you would have the application of technology and sensors to watching, say, North Korea then was under, you know, behaving in the, the relatively under sort of uh, uh, controls in, in nuclear management, nuclear power management, uh, and SEALs, and you could have, you know, centers that would watch this stuff. Um, and you had a lot of other things that I, I can't get into that were part of the trust-building mission. When 9-11 hit, it completely inverted again, all the war-fighting elements of this one. And I think that you see that across the board. You know people in the FBI, the NSA, the Director of National Intelligence, all of these arenas essentially reorganized themselves to be about war-fighting and dealing with terrorism. So the trust-building aspects as funding by government uh, clearly evaporated, except in the kind of cool, nifty stuff like digital diplomacy, which I you know, think is a little bit like you know, cake frosting on a bigger problem. But with that, I want to thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.